Specialty Story, session number 101. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week where I get to have amazing conversations with physicians about their specialties. And this week is a little bit different. We've had a few of these in the past, but this week we are talking to a fellowship program director, a neonatology fellowship program director. We are talking to Dr. Patrick Myers, who has been out of his own training now for eight years and has been a fellowship program director now for a few years. We're going to talk all about neonatology, what that fellowship looks like, what as a program director he is looking for in potential candidates, and much more. So if you are interested in neonatology, or if you just want to know and want to get inside the head of a program director, this is the podcast for you. Let's go ahead and jump in and start the conversation with how Dr. Myers became interested in neonatology and pediatrics to begin with. Really kind of late in my uh, pediatric residency career, probably kind of in the middle or, or end of third year, I always thought I was going to be a hemonk uh, doc, love the parents, um, love the acuity, and just found the medicine not kind of up my alley. It's pretty protocolized for me. Um, and I'm much more of a person who likes to solve a lot of kind of problems and different problems every day. Um, so I didn't uh, really figure out that I wanted to be a neonatology till after like my entire residency class matched in neonatology. So I spent a year doing um, being a peds hospitals, which was a great experience because it let me go to a lot of deliveries. Do you find that the the kind of fellowship match process is puts puts a lot of people at a disadvantage because you have to figure out what you want to do pretty quickly so that you can get prepared for for the applications? It's yeah, we I think that is correct. My sense is the fellowship match is really helpful in terms of like streamlining it and getting everybody a chance to kind of get their application out to a million people. It used to just be like, I know John or I know Jill um, and they're great and welcome to the fellowship. Um, And that has some pretty big downsides, but like you don't really have an awful lot of opportunity to kind of like you've got to pick so quickly that if you want to change your mind, it actually is a detriment because that's one of the things that program directors look at is if you've you've picked something else already or you've kind of wavered a little bit, it makes people skittish because um, a really big downside for me is if somebody two years in decides they want to do something else. Now I've got a big hole and I've got even worse than that, I've got a big hole that I've got to explain to every applicant coming in. And I get it from my point of view, but I actually do feel for the applicants because I feel like second year, you know, I don't know, what do you really know? I mean, there's a whole host of things that you haven't experienced yet. And so I kind of wish there was a little bit more of a middle ground that maybe we could do it at the end of or middle of third year and then just sped up the timeline. But this is kind of what we have right now. Do you see any downsides uh, or any disadvantage for the residents who are Kind of like what you did, taking an extra year to to figure it out and doing research potentially to to become a better applicant. I mean, I 
I'm lucky because I'm I come from a really highly competitive program, and I love those applicants. I love the people who've done a chief year, a hospitalist year, a research year because. What they're telling me is I went out to the real world, not residency, not medical school, had to work with real people in a real work situation. And essentially, I'm going to take a pay cut and go back to kind of a much more hierarchical, regimented um, lifestyle because I love it. Um, And on top of it, for me, I now know you've got like work skills um, that, you know, as much as you try in residency and med school, you haven't quite picked up yet. and that real life experience is just, is like a gold mine for me. For when I, at least when I look at applicants that have that additional year, um, they, that always piques my interest. Cause I know that these are people who one love the field and two are just going to have so many more skills, uh, than the people who just went straight through. It's very similar for medical school admissions with non-traditional students, students who have been out in the workforce and it's like, oh, I guess you really do want this. You're coming back into this and you are bringing a set of skills that, that traditional students aren't bringing. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I started med school when I was 29. Uh, um, you are one of those. A, I am. And I was a theater major of all things, right? <laughs> um, and I had to work my butt off because I had a, a job. Um, I had a new, uh, I just got married and trying to take like post-bac pre-med and, and, you know, I don't, it was hard to do. And so there's a lot of desire there. Right. And so that I look for that in, in applicants is, is desire. It doesn't mean you've got to take time off uh, to show that, dem- that desire, but the wanting to do it is really key to me in terms of finding people. What traits do you think lead to someone being a good neonatologist? I think you've got to want to and really love solving problems. I think that's one of the great things about the job is essentially by the time you become a neonat- uh, attending neonatologist, the variety of illness is really varied. And so you're always having to solve problems. And it could be like pathophys, but it could be communication and it could be parents are melting down and you have to have like, how am I going to be empathetic to this person who's kind of struggling and maybe yelling at people in the unit? Or how am I going to um, logistically get this baby here from say, like, how am I going to fly them here for in Southern Illinois? Um, and so the thing that I like, um, about it, and I think is really, you've got to have is the ability to kind of pro- solve problems and kind of be calm, cool, and collected while you're doing it. And I think you've got to have really just exceptional communication skills, uh, and empathy because you're dealing with parents that are just shocked. You know, like nobody imagines having a sick baby, like there's 4 million births a year, hardly any of them ever come to a NICU. And so people don't have any kind of like baseline for this. There isn't, you know, an aunt or uncle didn't have this happen to them. Um, And so they're just totally um, caught by surprise. And so having good communication skills with the parents is key, but then also we work with basically every subspecialty. um, And so negotiating a lot about you know, subspecialist A wants this, but B wants that. How are you going to kind of pull those two divergent views together and still come up with a really good plan? So my sense is problem solving and communication um, are the two things that you've got to be pretty good at. What are some of the common things and, and pathologies and, and issues that you're seeing in, with patients in the NICU? I mean, it, the, the great thing about neonatology is that ex- Probably except for rheumatology, all of medicine is in neonatology. So 
it's interesting when my um, adult family asks me questions about MIs or strokes or orthopedic fractures or um, ID, I actually kind of, I can have a decent conversation with that because kind of every chunk of that is in neonatology in some way. Um, probably the hallmark is it's, um, it's ICU though. Um, so the kids are sick. A lot of our kids are ventilated. Um, a lot of our kids are unstable. But what probably differentiates it from PICU or neuro ICU or um, medical ICU or surgical ICU is that a lot of our really sick kids stay for a long time, um, especially in a really big unit. They might, it's not unusual for kids to be 100, 200 days here. And, you know, we have some kids that kind of creep up into having been with us since birth for a year. Um, so it's kind of, it's a weird hybrid of ICU, but also some amount of chronicity involved. Um, and the, probably the biggest thing that is the heart, maybe the hardest thing to to manage is um, babies have really, the lungs tend to be the limiting factor because we get a lot of babies that have lungs that are underdeveloped. Um, and so it's a balancing act of you can help the lungs and keep the kid alive, but mechanical ventilation for, you know, 10, 20, 100 days, 200 days is really actually pretty bad for you. Um, and so you're always kind of making that balance. It seems to be potential bittersweet to have a birthday in the NICU. It's like, oh, you made it to one, but you've, you've been here the whole time. Right. And that just puts an immense amount of emotional, physical, financial pressure on families. And yeah. um, so you've got to be willing to kind of embrace that in some way, shape or form, because you do really like partner with the family because you, you know, I do three week service blocks. It's, it's not unusual for some, some NICUs to do two or four week service blocks, but the family's there the whole time. And so you kind of got to be a partner in some way, shape or form with them. When you're evaluating residents for acceptance into the fellowship program, how do you determine who's going to be good at communicating with those families? It's really hard is the honest answer. Um, I mean, I think any person with any competent um, professionalism and communication skills can probably fake it for a day of interviewing. I mean, if you can't, you probably have some um, issues. <laughs> uh, and so I try to let people talk. I actually don't ask a ton of questions. I ask two or three very open-ended questions and let people be comfortable and talk. Um, and sometimes people get a little too comfortable. Um, I really evaluate how people treat my support staff. So like my section administrators, the people touring you, the fellows. Um, I really heavily scrutinize um, letters from um, from your references, you know, it's uh, a letter from a program director is, is actually really key. So if you can get the fellowship program director to say good things about you, it's really important because they're my colleague and they're going to hold me accountable. So if I send this letter, this glowing letter, and I actually didn't feel that in my heart of hearts, next time, a month or two, when I see this that person at a national meeting, they're going to call me on it. And so having People like section chiefs, fellowship directors, that you have a personal relationship, um, that letter um, has to be really accurate. And so those letters I value very highly. Um, when I have residents from my program go into neonatology, and they ask me who I should get letters from. That's kind of who I recommend. And I also kind of say, like, what you need to ask them is, can you honestly write me a very good or a superior letter of a recommendation? 
And my sense is if you get any hint of body language or anything that that isn't an unequivocal, enthusiastic yes, mm. do not take that letter. Yeah. Um, there's actually literature out there on uh, medical literature on like interviews. There's a uh, one that just came out about pediatrics, um, maybe about a year ago that talks about a lot of the kind of code phrases that happen in letters of recommendation. You know, this person is a good, um, communicator is actually a not yep. good thing to have on your, <laughs> in any way, shape or form. Right? Yeah. Um, and it's, it's an interesting read because it tells you about the, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 little phrases that program directors look for that are, um, if you don't know, it, it may doom you. It's um, like real estate. You, you, you read the like write-ups of houses, like it's a quaint house, but like, oh, you mean, that's a, it's not a very good house. <laughs> yep. Exactly. That's in the, in, that's exactly what, um, residency and program directors do as well. Do you feel like that potentially hinders the applicant coming from either a location where maybe they don't have access to a neonatology fellowship program director, or potentially it's a newer program director who doesn't know that lingo? Yeah. I mean, my, I'm about two years into this job and I kind of did an apprenticeship with my prior program director for three years before that. And it took me a while to write good letters um, because you, you've got to be enthusiastic and really sell people, but because you want these people to go out and be really successful and get a good fellowship and, and, and be a part of your community. Um, but you can't oversell. And sometimes when you're selling somebody the way you want them to, you actually aren't. Uh, you're, you know, you say like, oh, this is a really good person to be with. And people read that a different way. So mm -hmm. yeah, you've got to, it takes a little bit of skill to kind of get this down. I do give, I do kind of wait where people are coming from um, and what the program directors like and how much I know them. Um, so I, I probably will give you some credit for that. Um, and you can make up for, it's just a tiny piece of the application. So you, you can make it up in so many different ways as well. Let's talk about the application as a whole. What are you looking for in a good applicant that you're going to bring into interview? It really depends. I mean, the NICU fellowship is so diverse. There's about 100 NICU fellowships. And what I do is very, very different than even some of the programs in Chicago do. Um, and so I think one of the big things to do when you're filling out your application is know your audience. Like, you don't want to apply to 100 programs, you want to apply to you know, 10 or 15 that fit you and fit what you want to goal. You know, if your goal is to go out and be a private practice neonatologist, you're probably looking for a different program that if you say, I want to be an R funded researcher, they're just not the same. Um, so, I mean, I, I come from an academic program. My goal is to kind of like generate um, leaders in the field of neonatology over the next five or 10 or 20 years. Um, so I'm looking for capability to be a very good clinician. Um, and that is hard to prove, but essentially, you know, really doing well on all your rotations in, in residency. I look all the way back through med school um, at like all those, your peds and surgery um, letter, rotations. Um, I'm also looking for potential um, in research. You don't actually have to have done any, but you've got to kind of some way sparked my interest. Like maybe a good example of this is I interviewed somebody who'd done, never done research. And he, he basically said, I don't know if I really want to do research or not, but I'm actually really curious to try it out. Um, and when I brought him in, he was 
we talked about everything but research. But he was like, oh, I love doing the New York Times crossword puzzle. And I really found like this NPR interview was interesting. And this was a, there was this an amazing article about uh, bronchopulmonary dysplasia and lung disease and neonates, right? That person was great because, and, and got him a, offered him a spot. He came here. He's doing amazing um, in basic research because what he demonstrated to me was like intensity, interest, curiosity, mm -hmm. desire to solve problems, right? Um, and so I'm kind of looking for that. It's some people are easy. Uh, you know, somebody came in with six publications before their even hit fellowship, right? And most people don't have any or maybe have one. That's an e easy one for me because they, you, they kind of have shown me that they like doing science. Yeah. But that's really rare. Um, you know, I see about half the applicant pool every year and, and those people are phenomenally rare. So you've got to show me that I'm looking for academic or research interest um, down the line and you need to show me that that's your cup of tea and and you can do that in a lot of different ways um personal statement on the your um your acgme application is really good like hobbies i like in some ways like tell me an interesting story like everybody tells me um oh i love neonatology i saw <laughs> a baby this this baby like and this family made made my life change yeah. and that's why i want to be in neonatology i mean out of the hundred plus interview applications I read and personal statements I read, I'd say ninety five read. And I basically I look at them, but like my brain hurts reading them yep. um, because everybody says the same thing. Like, tell me a unique story. Tell me what fires you up. I mean, a good example is like I love like people who have done something and done it well, like a dancer. Right? I've danced since I've been three. I love dance. You know, I got great grades despite dancing 15 hours a week. I kept doing it in college. I'm still going to do it now. But um, really, I discovered my passion is being a doctor and neonatology. That shows me commitment, work ethic, ability, balanced life. The harder ones, the applications for me to read are the ones where people are CV building and you can tell them a mile away. Yeah. I mean, you look at the application and it's they've done 100 things and they've done 100 things for one week each. I can't, it's, there's so much stuff on that paper that I can't actually tell what's meaningful and not meaningful, except there's just a lot of it there. And so you, it's hard for me to approach that person because I don't really know what that means. Like, does that mean you're kind of like scattered or you, does that mean you're trying to build a CV or does that mean you sacrificed stuff you would rather be doing to kind of build a CV, which is actually okay. But it's confusing to me when there's millions of things on the application. I much would rather, much rather have somebody who is like, I volunteered in a Boy Scout camp or a Girl Scout camp, you know, since I could. I still am involved in the community. It shows me kind of longevity because like medicine and fellowship and being a subspecialist is really about, you know, you're going to be doing this when you're 65. A lot of us are doing it when we're 70 or or, or later, right? And investment is what I'm looking for, right? And it, it also diff makes you pop out of the pile. Like if you're reading 100, 110 applications a year, people start to blur. Um, and so I need to kind of be like, oh, this is the dancer. This is the softball player. This is the person who loves philosophy. Um, I need to know something about you. And, and when you do a million things, I don't know anything about you. I just know that you have a busy CV. 
Now, when it comes to the the application, uh, a lot of people listening might not n- understand what is all on it. So you talked about personal statement. Is it similar to the the medical school application where you have the opportunity to write all of the different activities on there? Do they just provide a resume with it? So the application is really large. I get um, it's it comes in a couple different chunks. So a personal statement, which is a, a letter that is I don't know, 500 to 1,000 word long. Sometimes it's, and it's just basically free form. You can put anything you want in there. Um, And my sense is what's important to me there, if you're interested in an academic place, you you know you have to do research. Um, So please like tell me that you want to do research. If you don't mention, if you apply to all the top 10 programs and don't say a word about research, like people are going to be a little confused, right? there is your letters of reference, which are three to four, though you can get more than that. And the important thing there is like getting good people who are known in the community. But more importantly, is people who can enthusiastically talk about you. Um, there are um, in one of those references is kind of a summary letter from your your pediatric program director, um, and they have some very specific language that they will use. Um, and that's not much you can, I mean, you can affect that by how you do pediatrics, your, your residency, but you can't really affect that letter much one way or the other. Um, I see all your med school transcripts. So like all your grades, I see the little, like when you did surgery, I see the hundred, 200 words, the surgery program, um, felt program director wrote about you. Um, most med schools work hard to kind of make a summary statement about who you are. And they will have a paragraph that basically says, this is what you did beforehand. This is what you did that was unique about you during med school, like including volunteer. This person volunteered to do reach out and read in, uh, in Cabrini green for three of the four years they started uh, clinic, or they worked in a clinic and gave vaccinations to homeless people, like is a good example. Um, and then, and then there is a really long form. I mean, it ends up being about forty pieces of paper on the average person that is like dense, and it tells you tells me like hobbies, posters, presentations, papers you wrote, where you a chief president. It tells me your visa status, where you were born, where you live, where you consider your permanent address, what languages you speak, um, some things like, did you ever have a felony conviction? Did you ever have a misdemeanor conviction? It's a kind of a crazy amount of information to know about stuff. And what's hard about that is that, you know, there's a hundred DNA program directors. All of us have things that we like or don't like in there. Um, so it's a little hard to know. I would spend a lot of time if you're looking for programs, look at their website, websites reach out. I mean, you actually don't realize as a resident or med student that you actually have a pretty good social network. And so find the person who went to Northwestern and say, hey, um, can you, what do you know about the NICU fellowship program at Northwestern? I don't know anything, but I have a friend of mine who's a peds resident there. Like really work those connections, work the connections you have with the nurses. There's a lot, most nurses have done some traveling in their time. 
they will know stuff and they will tell you some dirt about me that <laughs> you should, frankly, you should hear, right? You And that's kind of one of the things I tell my my applicants is like, I don't want surprises. I want you to come in here, know who I am, why, what we're doing, why we're doing it. Um, and so I send my applicants out uh, for, you know, hour and a half with my fellows. And I basically tell my fellows is like, tell them the truth. Like, you know, I think we have a really good program. We generate really good fellows. Like we do great work here, but like, I mean, you can't not have, everybody's got their warts, right? And I want people to know my warts before I get here. So my sense is, you know, as you're going through the interview process, any interview process is if people are being a little skittish or you're not talking to the junior people, you should. Um, and you should be a little worried if people are, are hiding stuff too, right? Um, because they've got something big to hide then. Because um, yeah. people aren't going to treat you better than the, your interview day. Um, you know, cause you're, de- you're a really desirable commodity at that point. You've mentioned surgery a couple times and, and hearing mm-hmm. from surgery program directors from medical school, a yeah. lot of students are potentially scared of what sort of manual dexterity they're going to need as, as a neonatology fellow, what sort of procedures are they doing? And, and is it something that can be learned if they're not coming in with the the confidence or skills to do a lot of the procedures? Yeah, I I'm 100% convinced that we can teach you every skill you need to have. Um, you need to have some manual dexterity, but it is you do not need to be able to you know um, play the classical piano for two hours at Carnegie Hall. Like the level is relative; it's medium, right? You know, it's anybody can learn it. It some people are natural at it, some people are not natural at it. But we have a whole process, and almost every fellowship program has a process of making sure you get enough procedures and that you get some simulation. So the big ones we get, probably the biggest one we have to do is intubations. Um, and neonates, the airway is very different um, than even kids or adults. And we, some of our kids are very tiny, like. We can have 500. I mean, the smallest kid I've intubated is 275 grams. I mean, that kid is ridiculously teeny, right? Um, And that is a different kid for me to intubate than a kilo kid, and it's different than a kid that is four kilos, and um, it is very different from like an eight or nine kilo kid. Just the airway changes all the time. That's one of the kind of hallmarks of neonatology is you're kind of chronically or constantly developing underneath, and so you've got to have the skill level to intubate a lot those along that spectrum. Um, we put in chest tubes. We, um, kind of a unique procedure is, is your umbilical artery and vein is still open when you're a baby. Um, and we use that as our central line access. So we catheterize the umbilical and ven- uh, venous lines, arterial and venous lines. Um, and that's takes a little bit of time. They're very teeny. Yeah. Um, so it takes a little bit of doing to do that. My general sense is I'm never worried about people's ability to do procedures. We have some procedures there. I like doing them. It's kind of a, I mean, again, one of the things about neonatology that great is that you get to solve problems and you get to do a lot of different things, including some procedures, but I'm not, I think if I, for me, I, a, a subspecialty or a specialty where I did procedures all day, um, I wouldn't enjoy. And, and so the, there's a variety of procedures. It takes a little bit of time to do them, but um, I'm not worried that you can do them. What do you think for successful neonatology fellows, what do you think are are some of the, 
the things that make them stand out the most? It's actually a hard question because I think that um, there's such a wide variety of ways people can be successful. Um, I think the people that um, are really successful as a fellow um, are sometimes different than the people who ultimately are successful down the road. Um, I think the people, I mean, really good people skills um, just really get you a long way in life no matter what you do, right? And that is, is really helpful especially if you're trying to deal with subspecialists and nurses and respiratory techs and families and your colleagues. Um, I think the ability to be curious and then just, it's, there's a, it's a lot of work. I mean, I think that's one of the things that's kind of unique about neonatology as a specialty is you're, you're going to be working relatively hard. Um, I mean, there's certainly subspecialties and specialties that work a lot harder than we do, but um, you're going to be putting in a fair amount of time um, we do a lot of weekends, for example, right? Um, it and so it can it can eat into your life. And so if you're not really enjoying it, um, I think the people who are successful or are, are are people who are willing to do the work, um, communicate well, um, and are good problem solvers. When it comes to applying for residency, a lot of students will go on elective rotations to mm-hmm. to kind of audition for a program director. What's that process like for fellowship for neonatology? If you come from a really tiny place, um, people will will um, sometimes do that. Um, it, it's hard to get those. You've got to get the program letter of agreements, and so sometimes that's the snag because essentially that's a a agreement about insurance. I mean, among other things, so it can, it's doable. Um, I think it's useful. Um, but it's not anything I look for particularly just cause I know it's actually kind of hard for somebody coming from a small to mid mid level place. It's actually hard for them to pull off. Um, so like an audition rotation, um, doesn't help me too much. I, I would find it kind of unusual. In fact, interesting. For the osteopathic resident or medical student, what is kind of a, uh, what should they be doing potentially to to help themselves stand out against their allopathic counterparts? Yeah, it's interesting because my family doc was always an osteopathic doc. um, And I actually applied 50-50 when I applied for med school. Mm. Um, And so, I I mean, I think that the, the, the thing that I need to see a little bit more of is not, it is really the research aspect for me. Um, like I just feel like a lot of the osteopathic, um, residents that apply to me don't have quite have the research chops or don't demonstrate their interest in research. And that's kind of unique to probably a top 15, 20 program in neonatology. You know, we all are really big centers and and most people do some, some amount of research, even if I do a little bit of research, even though I'm not really, I wouldn't consider myself to be a researcher, but it's one of the many things I do. And so you've got to kind of show me a little bit that you're interested or have that experience. And that could be a summer lab or finding somebody you can do some type of epi, or I don't really care what the research is. Um, I would say more desirable just because it's actually getting rarer and rarer in pediatrics, but I think kind of globally is some ability or interested in doing bench research. So a summer of bench research um, during residency 
um, a little bit of bench research when you can squeeze it in. And I realize that's phenomenally hard to do because you're you're pretty squeezed during residency. Um, but people pull it off, and when they do pull it off, that makes you incredibly um, desirable, especially to the big programs. And my sense is, if you can demonstrate some research, um, the more you can demonstrate, the more desirable you'll be. Um, kind of globally, osteopathic for sure, but I think that my brain doesn't actually really look too much different between osteopathic versus non-osteopathic. I really, the deficiency when I look at the files is just that they're I'm really just looking for more kind of research, curiosity, ability to kind of be a leader in the long run. And the files are just, over the last couple of years, the osteopathic residents I've seen, and I haven't seen a ton, it just, they, that, that chunk hasn't been there. So it's a little harder for me to offer up an, an interview. Mm. What's something that is, is just an easy no-go from your side that you see in an application? Um, felony conviction. Um, it just, you know, like I, it, it, the world of additional work I would have to do to get that person approved by any number of people makes it just logistically challenging me for me to even broach it, no matter what it is. Um, some programs look, have hard cutoff for, for board scores. Um, I don't. Um, cause I feel like there's some people who, who excelled at med school or excelled in residency, but then didn't really, you know, like what I'm looking for is long-term pot potential and board scores. I don't feel totally reflect that, um, failing boards is, is problematic. You know, I think that's a big thing people don't realize is that, you know, failing step one, two, or three, um, that's a, that's a harder one for a program director to swallow. And that, and the reason behind that, it isn't just because we're being mean or capricious. Is that if you then follow, if you then fail peds boards, right? Because most people in um, pediatric subspecialists take their peds boards in their first year in yeah. fellowship. And peds boards I are then, hard, right? Yes, they're kind of hard, and <laughs> yeah. neo boards are even harder. Um, I then have to set a a chunk of time out of your second and third year of fellowship, pull you off of stuff, or set a stuff time so that you can pass your peds boards. And if you fail peds boards enough, you aren't then boards eligible for neonatology. And if you fail neo boards, then actually, even though you're working somewhere else and um, maybe in a totally different part of the country, you kind of are still my responsibility. Um, and I've got to find ways to remediate you with the American Board of Peds or the ACGME. Mm. And so if you kind of, I, I mean, that's the biggest thing I would tell people who are applying is like, whatever you do, just get your, get thing, figure out what you need to do to pass those board, those exams, because it will just really hurt. It'll, it'll keep hurting forever. Right. It's just like <laughs> yeah. a thing that is just hard to get over, uh, because it has negative consequences on the people hiring you because they, you're basically are saying there's a potential that will you'll make my life difficult. And if I've got 110 applicants and one of them failed their boards, like you may be good, but there's a lot of other people who are also good. And it's, so it's an easier choice for me. Um, I'm not saying it's a totally automatic. Um, I'm not, I, de I look at every single file and most program directors do. And if for some reason you can tell me that you've got your story's interesting or you've got potential, I am certainly willing to think about it. Um, but I've got to think a lot harder. Is that a good thing to put in the personal statement to call attention to? 
Yeah, I mean, we're going to see it. it yeah. I mean, actually, I think in Eris, it actually shows up as a bright red lettering <laughs> or something like that. I mean, you can't miss it. I mean, I guess you could, but like, yeah. it's hard to miss. Now, is that, is that something you talk about kind of being responsible for that uh, physician as they're out and, and trying to, to help them through that process? But is that also something that is kind of a black mark for your accreditation process as well? Yeah, yes. I mean, I, I have some leeway, right? But yeah, if enough people fail my NEO boards or enough people fail your PEDS boards, the ACGME actually becomes extremely interested in your program because they, they're interested in hard metrics. We realize that, you know, their medicine's the art, the art of medicine, but they can't measure the art of medicine. So they measure, measure the metrics of medicine. And one of the metrics they measure is board pass rate. So if enough people fail, um, I'm going to lose my accreditation, which is, or be put a be put on probation, or I'm going to get citations, and each of those things um, has adverse effects um, on the program. That means I can't recruit as well, and so yeah, it's it it, it potentially is a bigger problem. Yeah. Can you talk about kind of the the day to day life of a neonatology fellow? What is what does their life look like as they are working? It I think there's actually a, one of the things I would recommend to people is really when you're going and interviewing, really find out what the day-to-day life is, because it's actually a fair amount of heterogeneity among the programs. You have to do a minimum of 12 months of clinical service. Um, and so the clinical services, you're showing up at somewhere between six or seven, kind of depends, pre-rounding, getting sign-out, rounding, and then you're kind of like managing the unit and the myriad of problems that show up and teaching the residents. Um, you're signing out again, call, you're going to do call, you're going to do weekends. Um, but that also varies a lot. You know, some places you might not do so much and some, you might be Q4. Um, and so know what you're getting into because don't assume that it's all the same because it's not. Um, and, and then the rest of the time, um, you have to, the, the ABP has a requirement that you do research. So you've got to have a research project. Um, in some way, shape, or form. There's a couple ways to meet that. You could get a master's degree. Um, and there's a lot of little things like QI. You need to do a uh, QI project. Um, I try to have my third-year fellows do some administrative stuff to see if they like it and they're good at it and want to keep doing it in life. Um, so there's the remaining 24 months. You know, you've got to take some vacation out of that. Um, Oh, the other thing is you have to do follow-up clinic, which is, I think, one of the things that people don't realize is that every major center that does neonatology also follow up as a follow-up clinic so that the kids, when they go home, because we measure the developmental outcomes of all of our kids that are really tiny and um, at kind of high risk. And so some amount of time you'll spend in a clinic seeing former NICU graduates. It really varies, you know, like even research varies. If you do bench research, you're going to be in the lab every day, right? And if you do epi, you're going to be sitting in Starbucks or in the office I provide you or at home, you know, crunching big data sets. And for me, I'm worried about um, output. And so I don't really care how you do it. Um, I do kind of watch pretty closely how things are going and make sure that you have the help you need and that... um, I can step in and kind of like uh, provide aid if you need it, but uh, output is really kind of what I'm looking for, um, honestly. And so the there's a lot of 
you will be in the hospital a lot. You will be taking care of kid, babies a lot, but the rest of your life will kind of vary depending on the program um, and what your research interests are. What kind of final words of wisdom do you have for the, the medical student or resident out there interested in neonatology? I would, I mean, just for any subspecialist um, in peds, just kind of know what you're getting into. I think the, what I see a lot is people get attracted to the field by dynamic mentor or a dynamic faculty member, and people don't think about the lifestyle very much, right? Um, and I would, once you get attracted to something, think about like, don't think about what you're going to be doing as a resident or a fellow. Think about what you're going to be doing as the attending and think about what you're going to be doing as an attending for the next 30 years. Because it's, um, you know, what I did as a resident was very different than what I did as a fellow. And what I do as a, an attending is very different than I do as a fellow. And that's hard to do. But, you know, try to cultivate those relationships with attendings in the middle of the night. And, and one of the questions you can ask for somebody who's got a good personality and is happy to talk is like, hey, what, what's life like? What, what's it like raising kids? Or how does it feel to be taking call when you're 65, right? Um, and so base your decision more on that than on, um, I think a lot of times people initially pick because they kind of are like, this person makes this field seem exciting. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I had this phenomenal mentor who um, just really kind of like made me start loving neonatology. But I think the next step is like, can I actually do this? Like, if you don't like doing night call and being in the hospital um, a good chunk of your life, like it probably isn't for you. Yeah. It's it's funny. I was talking to a student recently, uh, a pre-med student, and and they were very interested in one specific school because of the the specialty, like the match rate. It's like, oh, they match a ton of students in in pediatrics, right? And yeah. so they must be a good school to go to to do that. I'm like, well, like, how about some other things to think about? Maybe there's just one amazing pediatric attending who's just an evangelist for the field, and everybody falls in love with him or her, and so they yep. they they just go, okay, that's what I want to do because of that mentor kind of effect, and it. it Hopefully it works out for most of those people, but a lot of times maybe it doesn't. I think one of the med school students I had once, um, who was the worst person by far doing overnight call, like just <laughs> genetically not it, or emotionally or whatever, not predisposed to do call in any way, shape or form <laughs> matched into neurosurgery. And I was like, uh. Oh my goodness, this is the worst combination I've ever seen in my life. But the person like never really thought about that. Like, because they had this person that they really loved who's a neurosurgeon and who really like sold them on the idea. And I was like, you should not be a neurosurgeon. You could be a neurosurgeon. You're just going to be sad for the rest of your life. Um, so that's kind of what, what I mean by thinking about it a little bit. Yeah. Well, hopefully uh, the student listening to this, the resident listening to this has a better idea of what neonatology is all about and what potential program directors are looking for. Obviously, you're, you're only an N of one, as we were kind of talking about before we hit record. But um, for, uh, for the student who is, is listening to this and is interested in neonatology, um, where do you recommend they go for more information? There, there's two organizations that actually have pretty nice websites, and we're linked um, if you type in, it's a mouthful, O-N-T-P-D, and it's the Organization Neonatal Program, uh, O-N, Training Program Directors, um, 
it's the first hit that comes up in Google. It's got a a list of every neonatology fellowship in the country that's updated, a lot of resources. Um, and then the other one is TCAN, uh, T-E-C-A-N, and that's um, basically a more junior faculty trainee uh, website. And those two combina- combination will give you a lot of uh, NICU-related or neonatology-related resources um, and maybe contacts so you can both see, do you like the field, but also like um, where are all the programs and and how are they different? All right. So there you have it. Another great episode. I hope a great episode for you all about neonatology, all about the fellowship of neonatology from the eyes of a program director. And obviously, I think we talked about it here in this podcast briefly, but Dr. Myers is one fellowship program director. And obviously, there are other fellowship programs out there and other ways to do things. But it's nice to hear the insight of at least one of these program directors who are guiding and directing and and really the gatekeepers to you and your dreams of matching into a fellowship. So hopefully we gave you some insight today and you can take this, learn from it, improve yourself, improve your application, and hopefully be the best physician in this case, the best neonatologist that you can be. We'll see you next week here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.